And at this time, the Trinity kids, K through five, can stand and meet me in the back. And any of the Trinity students that would like to help with Wiggles can stand and, and follow us back there as well to the library. All right, and if you have your Bibles, then you can turn with me to Luke chapter 6. And as our kids make our, their way out, we're in a transition month in August where the kids, uh, K through 5, begin in here and then are transitioning during the sermon with Cynthia into the large group. And then uh, starting in the middle of September, on September 17th, they'll be staying, staying in. But as they head out, you turn to Luke chapter 6. And our theme last week was that we asked the question, how healthy is your heart? And we saw that of all the opportunities or challenges you'll face in life, of all of the conditions that you'll experience or the circumstances you'll be placed in, the most important reality for your life is the condition of your heart. The heart is the center of your physical, your emotional, your intellectual, your moral life. And everything you do flows from your heart. And we only got halfway through our sermon last week, so if you have the bulletin, you can look at the first half. We looked at the three images that Jesus gives in Luke 6 about the heart, how it's, it's a tree that has to be cultivated. And it's, um, it also is a house that needs to be built, and it's a treasure that needs to be guarded. And then what we want to do this morning is to get kind of practical and say, all right, well, how do we do that? How do we cultivate a healthy heart? How do we guard it? How do we build it? What's Jesus' game plan for heart health? And what we'll see in Luke chapter 6 is there's three different soils. So soul soils that your soul needs to grow in. So there's three soils. And then there's three different steps to help you grow and to be healthy in each one of those soils. So what we'll do first is we'll kind of open up the text. I want to show you kind of where we see in the text, and then we'll apply it. So kind of two steps. Let's open it up, and then let's apply it. So first, let's look at Luke chapter 6, verse 12. And what I want you to notice in this section, the way Luke is setting up kind of his, uh, the version that he tells us of the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that's so fascinating to look at the way each of the gospel writers uh, tries to encourage us to faithfully follow Christ. They're all different, they're all discipleship manuals. What does it mean to be a faithful disciple? But they're doing different things. In Matthew, we saw uh, a couple years ago, we moved through Matthew's beautiful book that's intentioned around the teaching. He wants us to teach us. So you have five major teaching blocks, and then life is teaching life, and uh, showing how those integrate. And one of the things Luke does more than any of the others is try to show a Jesus that we're meant to follow, to be an example, to emulate. So he doesn't just want us to, to key in on, all right, what did Jesus do? But the idea is, all right, what did he do? And then how can I follow him? How can I do the same thing? And one of the beautiful things, if you study Luke and Acts in parallel, is the way that the life of the disciples, once they're empowered by the Holy Spirit, parallels the life of Jesus. And so when we're looking at, all right, what does Jesus do? We're to look at it with that question, all right, how can I do the same, <clears throat> same thing? So notice there's, there's three different kind of soils that I think he puts that our soul needs to be in if we're going to, to grow. So first notice in verse 12, in these days... He went out to the mountain to pray. 
And all night he continued in prayer to God. So the first soil that your soul needs to be planted in if it's going to grow is in secret prayer, personal private prayer, you alone with the Lord, daily communion with God. And without this, your soul is just, it's going to shrivel. It's just not going to prosper and to be healthy. And I notice that first phrase, it's in these days. And one of the things that Luke does, he's very specific, sometimes very uh, specific. Like when he gets to, he went out to the mountain. It's very specific. There's a, a clear, definite article. It's like the mountain, the specific place. But here it's just very vague in these days, at this time. And one of the interesting questions is, all right, when is it a good time to pray? It's kind of like that, kids. We have a running joke. They always know that whenever dad's going somewhere, uh, they want to tag along, even if it's anywhere. Like, I'm just going to get gas, just going to the store, because there's always the opportunity, the possibility, very highly likelihood that ice cream could be involved. <laughs> and so they say, all right, can we get ice cream? Well, why do we need to get ice cream? We had a spelling test today. We got to celebrate it's done. Okay, yep. They finished the spelling test. That's a good occasion for ice cream. Can we get ice cream? Why do we need to get ice cream? We have a spelling test tomorrow. We have to prepare ourselves. You're right. We need to properly prepare ourselves for the exertion that's going to be required. Let's, let's go. It's always a good time. So when is it a good time to, to pray? In those days. Now, what's interesting is Jesus has entered into the most intense public portion of his ministry, and he's able to carve out significant time to be alone with the Father. What kind of days are these? These are days of incredible activity. There is so much going on. He's in the middle of undertaking the most important events that's ever happened in the world, and yet there's still time, time to pray. It's kind of like the title of that classic book, You're Too Busy not to pray. So days of activity, but also it's days of conflict. Notice the verse before that. And he did so and his hand was restored, but they, the Pharisees, were filled with fury. And they discussed with one another what they were going to do to him. So conflict is rising. And I wonder if like Psalm 109 is not lurking in the background of Jesus' mind. Where Psalm 109, it says, For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with their words of hate. They attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me. But I will give myself to prayer. So I wonder in the background, these days of conflict, when's a good time to pray? When life is busy. When's a good time to devote yourself to prayer? In the midst of conflict and turmoil. But then also these are days of decision. As we'll see in just a second, he's going up to the mountain to, uh, when he comes down, he's gonna call the 12, who are gonna be the 12 apostles out of the, the, the group of disciples. So it's important, days of decision. So in these days, any day, it's a good day for prayer. Then notice a couple things about his prayer. He was alone with God. He had to go in the middle of the night. He went to the mountain, very specific location and place, went to the mountain, and all night he continued in prayer. He had to go to great lengths, even in this world, to find a place where there was no distractions, where he could be alone, where he could focus. You know, you think about, all right, what, what lengths are required of you to get to a place where there are no distractions. 
You know, it's encouraging that he had to do it in this world, but I wonder in our world if kind of the distraction meter has just been turned up to 11. But you look into history, you know, I think about like Susanna Wesley, John and Charles Wesley's mother. Uh, say, Ray, 12 or 13 kids, I can't remember, so full household. And one of her strategies is she would take a chair and she would put it up on the table and she'd sit in the chair, you know, this is the age of kind of these big, poofy, kind of black dresses. She would take the bottom part of her dress and kind of pull it over her head and create like a little fort. And then she'd pull it. This is where pocketbooks came from. She had a pocketbook, which was a book you could fit in your pocket. So the pocketbook was. So she had a pocketbook of the, uh, the Book of Common Prayer. And she'd go through the daily prayer cycle, the liturgy, and pray through the Psalms. And the kids knew on pain of near death. When mom is sitting on the table with her dress over her head, if, if there is no blood or fire, do not bother her. So you think sometimes extreme measures have to be taken. So you think, all right, what, what extreme measures are you willing to take? Like, are you willing to go somewhere and leave your phone into the car? Are you willing to wake up at this time? Extreme measures. So he was alone with God and he spent all night. It's interesting. He continued all night long. He had great business, but also I'm sure took great delight in it. Now there's an interesting parallel because in chapter 5 we see Peter and Andrew, James and John who have spent all night toiling, working, laboring, and they get done and they say we've caught nothing. And then here in chapter 6 there's a parallel where Jesus also all night laboring, toiling, praying, and then he comes and he calls his 12 apostles. But he was long in prayer. Then notice he comes down in verse 13 and when the day came, he called his disciples, so big mass of disciples, he calls them to, to him, and then he chooses from them 12 whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, <clears throat> the son of Alphaeus and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who was a traitor. So he comes down, and out of the big group, he's going to designate 12. Now, these 12 are going to have a unique role and responsibility. They're not just the 12. Often, they're the 12 disciples. There was a whole bunch of disciples. These become the 12 apostles, who become the foundation teaching stone that he's going to build his, his house on. And so they have a unique role and responsibility. But nonetheless, he's going to narrow down and have this context of, in essence, it's their version of a small group that he's going to be more intentional with. So there's always kind of this context of me alone with the Lord, me in the context of a smaller community where we're walking together. And then notice after that, they go into the big public gatherings in 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their disease. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. So you have these three contexts where Jesus is alone with the Lord in prayer, secret, private prayer, and then uh, with his group, the, the 13 of them, smaller group, and then now the context is in the great crowds, the larger gathering where he's going to teach and touch. And they're going to hear him and he's going to heal them. 
And so notice some of the words, this great crowd with great multitude. I just wonder, isn't it interesting that Luke very intentionally distinguishes this great crowd of disciples with this great multitude of people. And then notice the repetition were all. People from all Judea and Jerusalem and 19 and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and he healed them all. So all touch, all seek, all get healed. He had something for everyone and everyone needed something from him. And I love the, the, the succinct summary of Jesus' public ministry. It's one of hearing, they heard him, so there's public teaching, and then there's healing. So public healing, there's brokenness. And that's such a beautiful summary of what the church publicly should be about. And we, probably, we can understand this word, that word for healing, the Greek word is therapuo, so you, you know that word, therapy what's required for therapy to be, to be healed, to be restored. And I love that image where it says power came out from him and he healed them all. So everybody had some area of brokenness that they needed to experience the power of Christ. And one of Luke's great themes is the power of Christ is connected to the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of power. When he comes upon you, he'll come with power. And you can't do his ministry unless you do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he comes bringing the spiritual healing that this word, he sets the word on fire. So it brings the healing. So the key idea here is that there's three different soils that your soul needs to be planted in if it's going to grow. You need the context where you spend time alone with you and the Lord, then context in small groups, and then context in large group gatherings. So the question now is both personally, for you personally, and then for us as a church and organization, uh, how can you personally pursue each of those things? And then how can we help you and provide each of those contexts? So you can have a place where you come and experience him. Now notice the next thing, because this has to be kind of held on the three soils, because look, flip over towards the end of the chapter, after Luke gives us you know, the summation of the sermon and then comes to the conclusion and that beautiful picture that Jesus gives about, all right, uh, it's not enough just to hear my words, you have to do them. And if you do them, you're gonna be like the wise person who has built their house on the rock. And we looked at this last week. The storm's coming, it's coming for everybody. And uh, whether they endure will be a demonstration of the foundation they built on. But notice in verse 47, it says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. So that's the three-step process. First, you have to come to him you have to hear his words, and then you have to go and do them. So any, you know, if you don't do any of those, there's kind of a length in the chain. You cut any one of them out, and you, the, the spiritual power gets short-circuited. So the question now is, all right, we have these three different soils, and in each case, we have to come to him, hear his word, and then go and do them. So how can we do those three things in each of the different soils? So that's kind of how we'll look to apply it. So just think personally or in secret. You know, how can you develop the daily habit of coming into his presence? You know, John Stott, who's a wonderful 
faithful uh, British pastor who hit kind of his heyday was 1950s, 1960s, um, 70s. Uh, pastor, I think it was like 92, 93, who passed away several years ago. And at the end of his life, when he was in his early 90s, uh, he wrote a book called Confessions of a Lifelong Pastor. And I just wonder, that had to be some type of like publisher marketing title because it kind of sounds kind of swarmy, but it's not that at all. This is beautiful testimony of a life just live well and live faithfully. And one of the things he mentions in there is that, sorry, how did you endure and have a ministry and a life that seemed to grow and seemed to get healthier and more influential with each passing year and decade? And one of the things he looked back on his life, he says, I would not have made it in ministry or life if I didn't do um, early on. In my early 20s, I dedicated one hour a day, one day a month, and then one week a year. I was fully dedicated to seeking the Lord in this private times of prayer and communion. I said one hour a day, one day a month, one week a year. So think about your own life. Like what is needed, what structures, what habits are needed to develop that habit of coming into his presence? You have to come. You have to hear. You have to do. So you have to come. I mean, one of the first things, you've got to, got to schedule, time, place. You know, one of the things about prayerful, a, a prayerful posture of the heart is not really something you just kind of slip into. It doesn't just happen. It takes a certain level of intentionality. So you have to come. But then you have to hear. You have to hear his voice. You have to meditate on, contemplate scripture. You know, the act of hearing. You know, there's so much more involved in hearing than just letting the words come in. You all know what it's like to talk to someone and you feel, I don't think they're, they might be hearing me, but they're not listening to me. So that act of hearing, you know, there's a certain posture you need to hear, a certain disposition. You know, there needs to be silence. There needs to be lack of distraction. You know, this is a challenge just in our world about just how much noise there is all around. I mean, we talk about uh, climate change and carbon pollution. I mean, there's just noise pollution. This past two weeks ago, we were having car issues. And we were at a local mechanic place. We were trying to get the car looked at. And I thought, you know, this would be a good time to try and calm myself, recenter, refocus. And... Uh, but the challenge is sitting in the waiting room, there, there was not a quiet moment because there was two rows of chairs and they were facing back to back and facing one row was this giant television and then another row there was a giant television. And so not only could I not hear myself think, I couldn't hear the television. So one TV was showing Doctor Who, and I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. I've never seen Doctor Who. I wouldn't mind watching it. But the TV behind me was showing a fixer-upper marathon. So, I, I mean, I couldn't even focus on Doctor Who because I had Chip and Joanna Gaines' voice in the back of my head. So, I mean, you can't find a quiet moment anywhere. And so how do you find quiet? But you know, if you're honest, most of the noise that we're enveloped in isn't necessarily external noise. It's internal noise. It's the talking that doesn't stop in here. How can you find rest in quiet? You know, one of the things Blaise Pascal, like in the 17th century, said is that the, the, plague, the problem that uh, most people have is we can't sit alone with ourselves. 
because we know if we look, we'd be terrified at what we find there. So it's the noise. See, the Heavenly Father would draw you into his presence, but uh, you got to be, you got to rest, you got to be quiet. Generally speaking, he's not very pushy. So one of the things we want to help, all right, so how can we as a church help you enter into those quiet places and quiet spaces? You know, this is one of the goals. I'd love to get back to this, but one of our goals during COVID when we were doing the daily devotional uh, podcast and sending that out. The whole goal was that just to carve out 10 minutes of calm to take a piece of the word and bring it into your life. On the back, if you came in one of the handouts, there's handouts in the back that have uh, some beautiful questions that were written by Tim Keller that just helps you. So you take a passage of scripture, you read it, and then you just walk through those questions. And at the top, there's this uh, beautiful quote that I won't read to you, but you can read it from Anselm. But it's this quote that just says, it tells the soul, like, quiet. Take a moment, step out of the noisy world and rest a while and enter into the presence of the Lord. And this is a tool to help you come into his presence. Uh, one thing Paul uh, Gross, we're gonna talk about, there's a, a resource that, that he loves and has used, and maybe in October, have a church-wide resource to help you just read, read scripture together and then just take it and, and enter into those passages. But that's the question, how can you uh, have these times? What's keeping you from coming and keeping you from hearing. But then the next stage is, all right, well, you also need the context of the small groups. There's always been that context. I've been fascinated over the last couple of weeks to learn. Um, how many of you have ever been to a conference before? Ever been to a conference? What's the interesting, do you know the, the, the etymology, the story of the name conference, like where that word even comes from? Uh, a, the, a conference was... Uh, so for like 1,400 years, the phrase conference was a term used for, in essence, Christians to confer with one another about the word they heard when they were in church together. So you go back to the 3rd century, the most famous conferences, or John Cassian's conferences, and this was people in his church, he was a desert monk, but the people in the monastery, they'd have the liturgy of the word where the word would be read, it's the only way they'd hear it, it'd be read out loud, and then it would be preached, and then the, the idea is that you would take the word read, you would hold it in your mind, and you would just chew on it all throughout the week, and then you would go and you had a couple friends in your life that just as you're, you're living, you would then confer with one another about what you heard when the word was opened and read. And that was a term like John, even, so that's, that's in about 350 AD. And then in 1740s, Jonathan Edwards is still talking about that dynamic of people who just naturally have conference together where they're talking together about the word they've heard read and preached in, in church. And it's just interesting, you know, in, in that world, those kind of things, they had natural spaces for that. So, like, what do we do in our world where we don't have natural spaces for that anymore? You know, one of the, the, the brilliant things that the Methodist Church did and caused it to have such a movement and a boom. So, it was a time in, like, 1830s when one-fourth of every American uh, was a member of the Methodist Church. 
And part of the energy was their small group ministry because they recognized in kind of an, an industrialized world, a lot of those natural relational ties were fracturing and fraying and you had to have some type of like group of people that you were walking through life together. And so that's one of our goals. We think as a church, all right, how can we in a transient you know, society help you uh, have some of those spaces where you can confer, you can have conference together. And so one of the reasons we're shifting up, so we'll have worship at 9.30, then our 11 o'clock hour will be discipleship hour. The goal is to have classes where you can go to hear his word, have different opportunities throughout the week. So the men's Bible study, women's Bible studies, those are just different opportunities, hopefully to come. The different community groups that we'd love to have in all the different areas in the community, that these are places where you can go and gather and then... Um, <clears throat> Somebody said at our community group leaders meeting, I love this phrase, is that those community groups can be like an application engine where you're just hearing the word and then trying to walk together. It's the context where you say, all right, we, we came, we heard the word, now how do we do it? How do we do it together? But that's a soil that has to be in place so your soul will thrive. And then the last one is, of course, the public gatherings where we come. And we talked about this psalm a couple weeks ago when we talked about seek his face in worship. Talked about how Barna defines a, you know, a healthy, strong, mature, resilient Christian as somebody who attends worship once a month. It's like, man, we, we, we have lowered the bar so drastically low. It's just, you're just, I mean, once a month, I'm sorry, like, I don't know. I mean, I go to Jeremiah's more than once a month. And so there's just, there's, you know, regular church, we've got we to gotta come. And it's a challenge in our overscheduled world with so many competing activities. We've got to come, got to hear. One of the challenges is even this context when you come, what are the challenges that are keeping you from hearing? You know, this can be a challenge depending on the age and stage of life that you're in, or maybe your, your children are in, or the people wiggling in the seat next to you are in. So we recognize that. So as we, in the 17th, when kind of new start, kind of what we're, what we're trying to provide. So if you have kids, kids who are, uh, have not started kindergarten and under, we're going to have nursery, um, and that's going to last the whole three hours. So they'll have nursery uh, there from zero to four, and we'll have two people in there. They're just kind of staples that are always there, and then we would love. We need some rotation for adults to help uh, come in in the nursery. And then kids who have started kindergarten will, will start here in the service. And we know the kind of that, that window. So if you have kids that are kindergarten through about second or third grade, you know, that's kind of the, the window where it's, it's tricky on them. It's tough on them. So we think about, all right, how can we help them uh, here? What can we provide? And I know, like, we are in that demographic. So, we, you know, we have four kids, two girls, two boys, and our two boys are right in that window of K and second grade. And I think about it, even when we had two services often, Cynthia would come home after the second service and say, I'm so glad we have two services because I have no idea what you said. And uh, if I got time for this story, I think I got time. But there was one Sunday where my man Sam, you know, we had Sam, he was four at the time. And uh, in between the first and second service, uh, I go out and he's on the playground and he's playing. I'm like, uh, Sam, go ahead and, you know, in a few minutes, come back in and you come and sit in the service with me. He's like, okay, got it. Service starts. You know, we start going. We have the announcements. And I'm looking around. And there's no Sam. 
thinking, where's that little rascal not coming back in here? So I go out to the playground, and I walk out of the playground, and it looks like ghost town. I mean, it's like the wild, you know, the tumbleweed with the public's bag just floating across, and there's nobody. And I thought, oh, man, where is he? And so I start running to the kids, you know, classrooms are back there. Start running, trying to see if he went back to his classroom. He's not there. Come running back in a couple moms. So uh, uh, um, Maxine Sadarma saw me. I think Anna said, I think you saw me too. We're like, I, what, you know, why, you know, the preacher's outside during the service running. So I, I like, what's outside? Have you seen Sam? I can't find him. And so they went right into, I mean, that's better than like calling the CIA when you have moms like kicking into, oh, we got the missing child and started, you know, whipping out the phone, started giving hand signals. And uh, so they, so I come back in and I'm like running through my mind. I, what am I going to do? And Cynthia leads up and it's like, now it's time for confession. I'm like, oh, you want to hear a confession? <laughs> and then she starts the, you know, this wonderful, beautiful pastoral prayer about the Lord bless, you know, your word and be with Ben as he's about to speak the word to us. And I have no idea what she's saying because very sheepishly, I'm like walking up to the podium and I'm running all the scenarios in my mind. Like, all right, how do I... My tendency is to kind of turn things like this into a joke. So, like, what do I do? Do I say, um, Cynthia, you know, you know the child I was supposed to be watching? Have you, have you seen him? Or do I, like, stop the service and say, like, let's all go look? Like, I have no idea what to do right now. And I'm just squirming by this point. And she's wonderful, beautiful prayer. And I'm here just squirming, like, I do not know what to do right now. And then luckily, I see Maxine pops in right when Cynthia's at, and, and, and it's in the name of Jesus, we pray. Maxine pops in, big smile, thumbs up, we got him. And I was like, okay. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And I have to be honest, in that moment, it was really hard to hear. What, I, I couldn't even hear what I was saying because so distracted. And uh, it can be hard. So what do we want to do for kind of kids in that window? You know, we want to have our, we want to, we want to habituate them and have them develop the habit where they come in and know this is a place for us. This is worship. This is our family. This is our people. The word is open and it's not just for my parents and it's not just for them. It's for me. But we know it's going to take a while for some of them and some personalities. And so we'd love to have a uh, little thing, to, uh, we've got some curriculum and some stories, so if you'd like to uh, help read with the kids, we'd love to have some space for kids K through about second grade who kind of need that transition time uh, to be able to go during the sermon and hear a story and engage. And then for those who stay, we think about second, third grade. Somewhere you have to know your kids. Somewhere in second, third grade, they're able to sit and kind of focus in. We want to have bulletins and different uh, kids' bulletins and different resources so they can zero in and try and develop the habits of hearing the voice of the Lord spoken uh, to them. And I just thought that actually wouldn't be a bad time to tell about uh, some changes we want to do about security. Because we, uh, you know, we used to have a resource officer here, and you know, we would they, all the kids would once they started meeting in the trailers. You know, it's just so much more convenient for the parents to drive to the bus loop and drop them off and go that way. And we're talking about bringing the the security 
officer back, but even as we were talking to them, they said, honestly, if you have like every door open, it really makes it hard. So we really need just to streamline one entrance and one exit. So uh, parents, we know that'll be more inconvenient going forward, but we're gonna try and streamline everybody just through the front, kind of out and then uh, back that way. But the whole goal is to create a space so we can come into his presence, then we can hear his voice, and then we can go and do. That's why we're changing up those things. Love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. I said, this should be the one great object of all of our gatherings, to be brought more fully into Christ. And all of us must meanwhile believe that Jesus is in the midst of us, and we come together to hear him. Now, at this time, he was one of the most famous people in Britain, and they, uh, even American tourists would go over to London to hear Spurgeon preach. And he says, you do not meet tonight to listen to a certain preacher, but because through that preacher you've been helped to draw nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore you are glad to hear his voice and glad to worship God with those friends with whom you have fellowship." in his name. So that's the whole goal, to come and to hear his voice. And you know, in the midst of all the challenges, just an overscheduled world, a distracted world, an overactive world, uh, we would be remiss not to remind ourselves of what a privilege it is to be called into his presence. That God wants to meet with his people and that God wants to speak to his people. And that he hasn't left them alone to flounder in his world. I was struck this week uh, with Isaiah, the passage Isaiah 30, 18, just thinking through this promise of God saying, I want you to grow in my grace. This is therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He waits on high to have compassion on you. He's a God of justice and how blessed it is those for those who long to be with him. So he's longing, desiring to be gracious to us. You know, Matthew Henry said of this, the great dangers are deadness and dullness within and distractions and diversions without. We want to fight both of those things. So we'll close and we'll pray and we'll praise him for the way that he has made so we can come to him and the tremendous promises that he's given because he wants us to come to him. So Lord, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, you came not just to call the righteous, the rich, the people who have it all in place and put together, but you came to seek and to save those who are lost. And you came to call sinners to yourself. And we celebrate that you were mocked when you were here on earth, but we are so glad for the title that you are the friend of tax collectors and sinners. So we thank you for the gracious invitation that you've given to come to the weary and heavy laden. You say, come, and the assurance that whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. And you said, whoever is thirsty, come. And so we thank you for the assurance that we have that you uh, call us to yourself, but you came from the Father to speak words of life. And like Peter, when many of the disciples who were following you abandoned you and you asked him, where do you, are you going to go to? And he says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. 
And we praise you that in these last days, Father, you have spoken to us through your Son. So we ask that you would give us open ears and an eager heart to hear him. And we thank you that he gave us an example so that we could follow in his steps and walked as he walked. So we praise you. And now as we turn and we celebrate communion, because communion is that great symbol and celebration that God not only wants us to come, he's made a way so we can. The bread can symbolize in feast at his table. And he says, come to my table to eat with me, be in my presence. And the cup represents the blood that's shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the way we can be cleaned and washed and, and brought in. So here at Trinity, we open it up. The Lord's table is open to all the Lord's people who have been baptized and are seeking to follow him. And the way we celebrate is we'll have um, servers, uh, two in the front and one in the back. There'll be a gluten-free station in the back and you come and you take the bread and you dip it in the cup and uh, you remember uh, his death. So once we're in place, you come.